So as you can imagine, or as, as, if you were with us last week, you'll have seen Zach on the screen giving us a bit of an intro into the run into Easter. And I, I, don't I don't know how many of you remember the, you remember the Coldplay video, The Scientist, where it all does it in reverse. And we're kind of, we thought this year, we'll just back up a little bit. So rather than hitting Easter on the triumphal entry, we thought we'd just take a few more weeks and actually take a few steps back because it's actually quite a cool, um, cool story. Um, so we're actually joining it on a bit of a physical journey. So I've got a map that hopefully will work. There we go. So people who like maps and visuals, this at the top there, you've got Capernaum. And the Transfigurations, which was where uh, Zach started off last week, it was probably one of the mountains somewhere around there-ish. And then it's probably about a 100-mile journey, so it probably took them a couple of weeks. And essentially, this is the journey which we're going on between now and Easter. And as you can see, and if, if you go on to the next slide, we're gonna, today we're going to join the disciples having one of these conversations along the road that is probably somewhere around there, because next week we meet Bartimaeus in Jericho, so just before they head into Jerusalem. So let me just pray, and then we'll get into it. So, Father God, we just thank you so much for your wisdom. Lord, we thank you that we can worship you and that we can uh, meet you in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And, Father, we thank you for the wisdom of Scripture. And we ask, Holy Spirit, this morning that... You would help us to hear whatever you have for us. Uh, Father, we want to be increasingly made into the likeness of Jesus, Father. We want to be disciples who listen well and who surrender well. Um, so, Father, just speak to us this morning, we, we ask you, Father, because um, all wisdom comes from you. Amen. So let me just start reading. We'll read uh, Mark uh, chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 32. And it goes, And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will, be con and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup? That I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptizing. And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And you see, this was the third time that Jesus had explicitly um, told them what was going to happen, that he would be handed over, that he'd be put to death, and that three days later he would rise. And yet, despite James and John being part of his inner circle for the last three years, done all the journeying and the traveling, um, they were completely blind to Jesus' true mission. You see, James and John were still expecting a political Messiah. They were still believing that Jesus was going to literally rule on a literal throne of David in Jerusalem. You know, and they're anticipating revolution and confrontation. So when Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? The disciples actually take it, probably take it to mean, like, will you fight alongside me? Leading them to bravely answer, we're able. And you can almost imagine, you know, once, once if it plays out according to how they imagine, um, when the dust settles and the time comes to define some new power structures in, in Jerusalem and Israel, they, they almost they want a seat at the table. And they say, you know, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left. You know, they're wanting positions of uh, the highest honor and importance. And they saw an opportunity to get ahead or almost get a bit of a leg up. And I speculate, but maybe they thought, you know, it's kind of last, you know, we're going to Jerusalem. It's probably all going to kick off some point soon. You know, maybe this is one of the last times getting a bit of a request. But what it so transparently and wonderfully exposes is, is, is the appetite for human greatness, which is universal um, to all of us. Because we were made to know greatness. You know, God made us to participate and marvel and revel in greatness and glory because they're the things which bring our hearts to life. But that marveling and delighting was always meant to be in God himself. But what's happened is sin has exploited those instincts and appetites and instead of the focus being on God, they, they, it draws itself and tension to the self. We're going to do a bit, I'm, not, I'm going to unapologetically give you a massive quote and read it, so we're going to do a bit of work. But I tried it this morning at the 9.30, didn't fall asleep, so we're going to go with it. So in, in, uh, in The Pursuit of God, which Tozer wrote, which is well worth a read, um, he says this so much better than I could. So it's going to be on the screen. Has anyone ever seen such a long quote in a sermon? But anyway, I'm going to read it. So try and listen, because it's, it's, it's excellent, excellent stuff. So this is what he says. He says, Before the Lord God made man upon the earth, he first prepared for him by creating a world of useful and pleasant things for his sustenance and delight. In the Genesis accounts of creation, these are, simp are called simply things. They were made for man's uses, but they were made always to be external to the man and subservient to him. In the deep heart of the man was a shrine where none but God was worthy to come. Within him was God, without a thousand gifts which God had showered upon him. But sin has introduced complications that has made those very gifts of God a potential source of ruin to the soul. Our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine and things were allowed to enter. Within the human heart, things have taken over. Men have now by nature no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. But there, in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight amongst themselves for first place on the throne. This is not mere metaphor, but an accurate analysis of our real spiritual trouble. There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. 
It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of old Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of theology could do. They are verbal symptoms of a deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things and we dare not pull them up, pull up one rootlet, lest we die. Things have now become necessary to us, a development and never originally intended, and God's gifts now take the place of God and the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. Now, I know that was long, but that's good stuff. And, you know, in many ways, like, James and John are completely experiencing the forces of, of this, 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 this nature. You know, and it's the same one as we're contending with and we're all facing. You know, James and John wanted the positions of, of, of power and position and significance and prestige. And it may not be so brazen or blatant in many cases in our hearts, and we may hide it a little bit better, but we're really not any different in terms of the temptations. Because our heart's appetite for earthly greatness, of the importance and recognition and reputation and significance are such strong uh, emotive um, powers and forces in our hearts. Tim Keller, in, in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, quotes an excerpt um, that an interview Madonna gave to Vogue some time ago, and it's really great. It says this. It should be up on the screen. So this is Madonna in Vogue a while ago. She said, My drive in life comes from a fear of being, being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, somebody, I have to prove that I am somebody, my struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Which is remarkably insightful and tragic all at the same time. Because the, the appetites of self are insatiable. And if you're looking to satisfy your heart's desire for greatness, there will always be more you could achieve, more to acquire, more to accomplish. And tragically, it will never be enough. That's why when you know, Tozer alluded to the whole, you know, men no longer have peace in their hearts. Because it, all these things, the, the focus on the self and the nature within our hearts will, leads us away from God and away from real joy. You know, you will never meet a happy narcissist. You know, they're the, they are the most fearful, insecure, anxious, tedious. Probably my sin in my heart for thinking they're tedious. But, you know, the, it, you don't get a happy narcissist. Because the relentlessness to keep it up that, and a, trying to reach a destination that is unreachable is exhausting. And you see, greatness doesn't come by achievement or accomplishment or how we, we provide for ourselves, or the positions and the responsibilities that we carry. And it will, may all sound really extreme, but um, often it is a lot more subtle. I remember, so I think I interned at Central over 10 years ago now, which is slightly terrifying. But I do remember, because uh, I, I, I worked in IT before it for seven years, um, and I remember I caught myself, when I talked to my non-church friends, or new people, I'd, I'd find myself saying, oh yeah, I used to be a software engineer, and now I'm doing this. And I was like, why, why are you saying you used to be a software engineer? Why, why do I feel the need to caveat 
what I'm doing with what I used to do. I mean, it's just a bit silly, really, isn't it? But, and it wasn't deliberate, but as I reflected, you know, I was afraid of what they'd think of me. So I wanted to kind of reel in some credibility by some of saying what I, what I did do rather than being a, a, a very low-paid intern. You know, and I felt like that kind of, sh I felt ashamed, you know, because my reputation was tinged, which is clearly nonsense. But my heart was clinging on to the notion of, of my own greatness. And so if we don't know where to start with some of this, it's kind of, you know, what, think of the things that you fear for. What, what are the things you fear? What do you think about in those empty moments? You know, what is it that you imagine? Where does your imagination go? When you think of the future, what, 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 what are you, where, does it, where, where do you end up? Does it end up being about what God and his kingdom might look like? Or actually, is it, it more to do with the other stuff? Or the, the, what you, where your career might go? Or how big your ISA could get? Or the holidays and the travel you could do? Now, these things on their own are not, not bad. But when they become all-consuming, when that's all that we think about, we start getting into problems. You know, and we almost need to be praying, God, you know, my heart is not where it quite should be. And it's an invitation for us to pray. You know, God, be my heart's affection. Reveal real wisdom to me so I can handle my nature and your wisdom and these forces. And, you know, and help me, Holy Spirit, to speak and lead me. And you see, Jesus, then he goes on, and he flips greatness on its head. In verse 43, he says to them, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. Now that is, that's, a, that's big stuff. That is not easy at all. But he's basically saying, you want to talk about greatness, then let me tell you, it's completely opposite to what you think it is. Greatness isn't prestige or power or wealth or the sum of your achievements. No, no. Those who are great in my kingdom are those who serve it's not connected to reputation how others perceive you. If you want to be great, it's a race to the bottom. Choose sacrifice. Opt for the worst seat in the room. Be a servant to all. And it's not because God, it's, you know, it's not like God's saying, it's not because I want to hurt you or to suffer. It's not out of some self-flagellation um, or some punishing notion of, of duty because we're somehow undeserving. No, he calls us to serve and to sacrifice for others that we might experience true joy, that we might know the deeply satisfying sense of his glory and kingdom that we will find and experience in no other way. And you see, sacrifice induces some of the most powerful human emotions. If we just think about all the films we enjoy, so many include notion of sacrifice. You know, our hearts respond and are moved and in many ways, it's almost like the encouragement is, you know, let, let the Holy Spirit fan that instinct into flame. You know, don't just be a spectator. Don't just watch the films. Don't just watch somebody else do it. He's saying, I want you to enjoy participating in what it means to, to sacrifice. Because there's a whole lot of joy that you will never experience in any other way, even though uh, your heart might tell you opposite. And it is a battle. I think we have to recognize it is a battle. Because the nature of the self will always be attempting to numb and distract those instincts that the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is trying to fan into flame. And we, you see, when we do embrace that kind of those attitudes and those choices, we get to we get to get a, we get an idea of what it's like to be God, because that's what He does, and we get to participate and we get get a, just a taste of 
of what the kingdom is and the joy that comes in, in bringing that kingdom that way. And in many ways, he's leading, back to the story, Jesus is leading his disciples on this final journey to Jerusalem as, as a literal incarnation of what he's teaching them. The highest demonstration of greatness the world would ever see. Jesus taking a final journey to Jerusalem to die. Because he had lived that perfect life, that perfect obedience. He had chosen willingly to present himself to be put to death for you, for me, for us, that we might live because of his great love for us. And it says he chose sacrifice that we would become the righteousness of God. That when we accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness, he looks at you, he looks at me, and he says, you are perfect. I know what you thought yesterday. I know the angry mutterings that you muttered towards the, the car in front of you. I know the lies that you told, which you'd be ashamed of anyone here, and yet I still declare you perfect. And you see, I think we have to face up the fact sacrifice is not pleasant. Sacrifice by its nature comes with a cost. If it didn't have a cost, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. And it's amazing how much we like the idea of sacrifice without having to, it cost us anything. But God promises that we will discover a joy and a freedom and an ecstasy of glimpsing what it's like to be him and participating in his kingdom. And so as we just come in to finish, I guess the questions, we, the natural questions for all of us to ask ourselves are, you know, what, what, are, what are the appetites in our hearts which are unhelpful, which are overly focused on, on, on ourself or our notion of cultivating greatness? Where is there not enough kingdom imagination? You know, where is God wanting to challenge us this morning when we look at Jesus demonstration of sacrifice in his teaching and his calling to embrace it. It might be as simple as literally inviting, you know, a neighbour over, over for a cup of tea and asking them how they're really doing. Or calling someone we know is struggling. You see, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to turn the world's value systems and power systems on their heads. He's setting off to give his life as a ransom for many. And if we want to receive all that he has to offer us. If we want to be the church for Edinburgh that he's put us here to be, we haven't really any choice but to follow him, taking that road to Jerusalem. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you so much for all that you have done for us, Lord. Lord, that you, you accomplished all that we could not do and gave us eternity. And Father, we just want to acknowledge the, the battle within our own hearts. Lord, the, the, the battle between nature and your Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you that you've promised to complete the work in us that you've begun. And Father, we pray that we would uh, choose to be active participants in what you're wanting to do in us and through us. Father, forgive us where we've become numb or distracted, where we've made poor choices. And Father, we really want to be the, the church and the people that you've, you're calling us to be. Father, we want to be a church that chooses sacrifice and celebrates sacrifice and 
walks in sacrifice and, and, and not just applauds it when others do it, Lord. We want to be participant. And so, Father, we just thank you for what Jesus has done. Lord, we declare you worthy. We declare you perfect and we, we delight in you and we want to delight in you more. So, Father, wake our hearts up where we're unimpressed by you where grace doesn't have as much wow as it, as it clearly should. Lord, return to us that joy of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.